in 2007 at a busy station for the Washington DC subway system. There was a violinist who was performing as a street performer. He played about six songs over the span of about 45 minutes. In that time, about a thousand people walked by. About 27 stopped and, well, didn't really stop. They at least threw some money in his case as they went by. And he earned a total of $32.17. Seven people stopped and listened in that time frame. Now, in many ways, that's not news. No reason why we'd even be talking about that happening because that kind of thing happens all the time in places like that. This was different because the violinist that day was actually a Grammy-winning musician named Joshua Bell, who was one of the, the most famous violinists in America just a couple of days before that. He had performed in Boston uh, at a concert that sold for about $100 per seat. And he was playing the exact same songs that he played at that concert there in the Washington, D.C. metro on a violin that... Uh, cost about three and a half million dollars. And yet, a thousand people went by, seemingly not caring. Perhaps some of them don't like the violin or don't like classical music. I think he was playing uh, pieces from Bach, some of the most well-known violin pieces in the world. Probably most likely, many just were busy. They had other things going on. They didn't have time to really stop and consider what was happening. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we find, in some ways, a similar picture. In the midst of a busy intersection of life, there is a message, there is something that should be catching our attention. And yet, far too often, we either don't want it, or we just don't care about it. And the message is found in Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 20. In Proverbs 1, in verse 20, we find an account of wisdom being personified as a lady. I think personified as a lady in part because wisdom in Hebrew was a feminine word. And so it kind of makes sense to picture wisdom as a lady. And this is God's wisdom being personified, being put into as if it were a human woman. And she is giving a message. In verses 20 and 21, we find a little bit of the context and nature of that message. Where is this message happening? In verse 20, wisdom is shouting in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. And so where is this happening? It's it's in the street or in the square or at the entrance of the gates in the city. And we shouldn't necessarily think that the square is different from the entrance of the gates of the city. Because in ancient times, the public square was the gates of the city. It was actually a place in which everyone would have to walk through, and there would be little sections often in these gates in which you could set up marketplace or you'd have courts set up. And so business and judicial happenings all occurred at the entrance of the gates of the city. This is where people were. This is where decisions were being made. And so this is a public open message. Some of you may remember a couple of weeks ago, 
In Proverbs, we were talking about a father giving a, a message to his son, a call to his son to heed his instruction. Now we've moved from the home to the public square, which is, I think, a reminder that the wisdom that is being described in Proverbs is not just a wisdom to be carried out in the home. It is a wisdom that's called to, to bear itself out in every aspect of life, in the way we conduct business, in the decisions that, that governments make, as we interact with each other in the public arena. We are designed, we are called to exercise wisdom. And I think it's also a helpful reminder that the wisdom in Proverbs is not some kind of hidden wisdom. It's not the wisdom where if you really want to know what's going on, you've got to travel somewhere and go to this mountain where, where uh, you have to come up to the very top of the mountain and find this person who's going to tell you the secrets of life. No, God's wisdom is out in the middle of where everyone is. And it's that wisdom is meant to come to bear in every aspect of life. And if I could maybe make a little bit of an application right away, that it's important for us to, to remember that what God teaches us in his word is meant to influence every aspect of our life. I think that's an important reminder to us as we are heading into an election season. I can say it this way, that as we vote, we should be thinking, what does God want to see happen in our society and in our government? Not just what would we like to see happen, but what does God's wisdom call us to do? How does God's wisdom call us to act? How would his values come to bear on these things? Because his wisdom is not just meant for the home, but for everything. And it's interesting, as wisdom is here in this public place, we find that there's a sense of passion and urgency. How is wisdom described? Wisdom is shouting in the streets. She is lifting her voice. She is crying out. And in some ways, that's not what you would expect a lady to be doing, especially in that culture. And yet it's emphasizing this is an important thing. This is an urgent matter. And there's a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of noise that's happening. And wisdom, in a sense, is saying, listen to me, pay attention to me more than anything else. This is the most important truth you could hear right now. This is what you need more than anything else that is happening in your life. Wisdom is crying out and, and calling out in, these, in this way. And so again, I think it's a good reminder to us that in the midst of the busyness of life and the myriad voices and sounds that we hear, we want to, to incline our ear to hear what God is saying in his word. We want to make sure that we are hearing wisdom and we are heeding wisdom. And in verses 22 to 27, we find the, the message. And it's really a direct warning. And in 22, we find the, the the people that wisdom is talking to. How long, O oh naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Now, I, I, I don't necessarily think you can make too much of this, but, but it's at least interesting that the naive are addressed directly, whereas fools and scoffers are, are not how long will you, naive ones, act this way? And then this is also true of scoffers and fools. And I think that might be in part because as you work through the book of Proverbs, there's really very little hope for scoffers. 
Scoffers are those who have become so hardened against God and his wisdom that they don't even consider it. All they do is mock it and they laugh at it. And fools are just barely better. Fools are those not who, who don't have mental capacity or mental ability, but those who through the exercise of their will despise what God has said. And that's what they're described as doing here. They hate knowledge. They look at what God has said. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so they hate God and his knowledge and want nothing to do with it. And who are the naive ones? You may remember I I said towards the beginning of the book of Proverbs, in many ways the naive are the, the ones that this book is directed to. There are those who don't yet know what they should know. They are simple They don't have the necessary experience and wisdom in order to make the right decisions. And so what they need is they need wisdom. And yet potentially we we see in the light of what wisdom is saying here that these are simple ones who are past the point at which they should really still be simple. There's a kind of sense of, of which they should no longer be naive. They should have already decided to begin walking down the path of wisdom. They shouldn't be sitting there and trying to decide at this point in time, will I go towards folly or will I go towards wisdom? And yet, they still are in that state. Why? Well, because they love being simple-minded. They love being in the position in which they are. Now, why would someone love being simple-minded? Well, I... Maybe in some ways, it's like our idea, ignorance is bliss. If I don't know, I'm not responsible. In our day as well, there might be a sense of, well, I'm open-minded and I don't really want to, to come to a firm decision because I know if I come to a firm decision, that should then affect how I live. And so as long as I just don't kind of look into it too much, I don't have to worry about it. And so these naive ones love being in this state of ignorance of being simple-minded. And yet, here, wisdom is giving a rebuke and a warning to these people. And and I think it's important to to recognize that, as I said, it's not really a question of intellectual ability. It's a question of the affections and the will. Because how are they described? They love being simple-minded. Scoffers delight in scoffing. Fools hate knowledge. Whereas one commentator has said, the problem is we love what ought to frighten us. We delight in what should repulse us, and we hate what should be most cherished. And so wisdom is saying, how long? The idea is obviously, we've been here before. We've talked about this before, and yet you have not changed. You are continuing on this path And the time has passed for you to have done what wisdom says in verse 23. Turn to my reproof. Turn. Repent. Stop going down the path of folly or even considering the path of folly. And begin walking down the path of wisdom. And this is a reproof. This is a rebuke. This is designed to correct you. And if you do that, what will you find? I will pour out my spirit on you. And I will make my words known to you. I think this is a promise of God's spirit and his word. It's a promise of guidance and wisdom. If you begin walking down the path 
that I've laid out for you. I will help you to know what you should do and where you should go. I will give you the wisdom that you need through my spirit and through my word. And so stop looking down this way. Stop walking down this way. Start walking down my path. And in verse 24, it seems there's a bit of a shift. Now, in, in the passage, it seems like it comes right after. And, and yet, there's at least potentially the idea that you've not responded still. Because what does he say? What does wisdom say? She say in verse 24, Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. That I've given you this warning, turn to my reproof and I'll pour out my spirit. And give you my, my words and make them known to you so you'll understand them and remember them. But you didn't do that. I called. And what did you do? You refused. You intentionally and directly said, I don't want that. And I stretched out my hand. A sense of pleading. Come. Walk down this path. And what happened? Well, no one paid attention. I think there, perhaps, there's an idea that it wasn't necessarily saying, no, I don't want it, as much as, not right now. If I could go back to the, the analogy of the, the, the street musician. People are walking by wisdom, and they're saying, I've got other things right now. I've got a busy schedule. I've got other issues I need to worry about. I don't have time right now to really consider your message and to act on it. And so they didn't pay attention. In verse 25, a similar idea, they neglected all my counsel. Just had really nothing to do with it. And counsel here, I think, you need to understand, is not just kind of advice. It's authoritative guidance. It's this is what you must do. It's counsel that is meant to be followed. And did not want my reproof. And again, we see there often is that emphasis. I just don't want it. I don't care about what you are saying, wisdom. What will happen? Verse 26. I will also laugh at your calamity. The also there, I think, is the idea of it will match up. Just as you did this, I will do this likewise. In a similar way. I will laugh at your calamity. Your downfall. The disaster that comes to you, and I think probably even, is the disaster that you deserve. It is your calamity because you have earned it. Now perhaps you read that, and you kind of are uncomfortable. I mean, how could God laugh at someone's calamity? We understand God says in Ezekiel 18, 23, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? And so whatever God is saying here through the personification of wisdom, I don't think it's saying I I take glee at what is happening here. And so what does it mean for wisdom to laugh. Well, certainly, there's an emphasis here on on the punishment fitting the crime. There's a sense 
that you are getting just what you deserved. So I will laugh at your calamity and I will mock when your dread comes. And I think, again, it's because of that also the idea is you scoffed at God. You laughed at God. You mocked at God. But you're not laughing now. I'm laughing now. You thought my way was folly and your way was wisdom. And so you looked at disdain, at my warnings, and at my, my calls to you to repent. And now I look at disdain at what has come to you as you reap the fruit of your ways. And so what does it mean for God to laugh in this situation? I think there might be a sense in which it's saying, how foolish of you to have walked down this point to, this, to the situation in which you now find yourself. I mean, it's utter folly that you're here. It's something that should create a kind of laughter of unbelief. Really? Didn't you see this coming? You should have seen this coming because it was clear that it was coming. And I think as well, it's important for us to realize that as God responds to sin, he is able perfectly to, to have multiple dispositions to it at the same time. That I think he can grieve, in a sense, at, at those who have failed to turn from their sin, while at the same time having a, a kind of righteous satisfaction at the enactment of divine justice. And so it is right for him to respond to those who have mocked him with a kind of righteous laughter and mocking. And so he describes their calamity and their dread. And it's said over and over again, it's coming, it's coming. Your dread comes. Your dread comes like a storm. Your calamity comes like a whirlwind. Distress and anguish come upon you. And, and perhaps there might even be the sense of inevitably come. By necessity, come. The obvious end to your path was this. And so you reached the end of your destination. And what is it? It is calamity. It is dread or fear. And it is distress and anguish. Whereas before... They looked with a kind of, of smug arrogance. Fools despising knowledge. I don't need God's knowledge. Scoffers mocking God's wisdom. Now they no longer have that sense of, of self-assuredness, but instead they find themselves in anguish. They find themselves in distress. They find themselves in dread. And this comes upon them like a storm and like a whirlwind. It is sudden and destructive. It comes on fast and it leaves nothing in its wake. And so in verse 28, it's almost as if wisdom now steps back and is no longer directly addressing these people, but instead is drawing out an application for all of us. And we see this because wisdom no longer talks about you. Wisdom now begins to talk about them. 
in verse 28, then they will call on me. And who are they? These ones wisdom's just been warning. These naive ones who have continued down the path of folly and potentially even become scoffers. These will call on me, but I will not answer. And they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. That I called on them, but they did not answer. I sought them. I was in the streets. I was in the gates. I was calling out to them. I was reaching out my hand to them, but they did not pay attention and they neglected it. So now they're coming, but they won't find me. In verse 28, we have a very important reminder that whether or not we find wisdom when we seek it, in part comes down to when we seek it. That there is a time in which it is too late to seek God. And when that time comes, it's over. Think, for example, of those in the days of Noah who were warned for years of God's coming judgment and then God shut the door and at that point in time, it was too late. And here wisdom is saying, There will come a point in time in which if you want me, you will not be able to find me. And yet I think it's probably in in light of the the context, important to understand, I don't think these people are necessarily saying, oh, I want wisdom now. Oh, I want God's instruction. What are they really calling out for? What are they really seeking? I don't want this disaster. I don't want this calamity. But it's too late. It has already come upon you. Why? Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They, through their own choices and actions, have ended up where they are. And verse 30 points back to verse 25. They would not accept my counsel and they spurned all my reproof. That's exactly what Verse 25 pointed out, you neglected all my counsel. You didn't want my reproof. I gave you counsel and reproof. You rejected it. And now it is too late. You are now experiencing the the fruit of your actions, as verse 31 says. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own desires. Now this kind of reflection in verses 28 to 31 certainly point to the fact that when this judgment comes, it's final. There's no longer a chance to turn at God's reproof. And in some ways, just like the idea of God laughing at these people, we might struggle a little bit with the idea of saying, I mean, can't you give them one more chance, God? Can't you give them one more opportunity. And there's probably more we could say, but, but maybe at least three ideas that might help us to, to think about the fact that, that God's judgment is final in this passage. The first is their judgment is exactly what they wanted and earned. So what verse 31 says, 
They're just eating the fruit of their own way, and they are satiated with their own devices. In a sense, God's saying, I'm not at fault. These people are. They are responsible for everything that they are facing. They have brought this on themselves. And certainly one of the, the, the worst judgments we find in Scripture is in Romans 1. God gives them over to their own desires. God gives them over to their own ways. Because what's the end of their own ways? Calamity, disaster, anguish, and distress. But another reason why I think the judgment is final is because it is a warning to fools. If there's always another chance, then there's no real motivation to change. And you know this, if you've ever dealt with children. This is the last time I'm going to say it. This is really the last time I'm going to say it. I'm really serious this time. And what, what are you ultimately communicating? I'm not really serious at all. It doesn't really matter what you do. And so if there isn't a point in time in which God says, this is it, then the warnings are meaningless. And as well, the flip side of that, that if the warnings of the life of folly are meaningless, then the necessary sacrifices of the life of wisdom are also meaningless. That if final judgment didn't matter, then really none of the choices we make in this life make any difference. And yet God is clear. There is there's significance in following the path of wisdom or following the path of folly. And that significance bears itself out in final judgment. In verses 32 and 33, we have, in a sense, a summary or a conclusion. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them. What is this waywardness? It's their turning from what God has said. They're not turning to what God has said, but they're turning away from it. And that will end up being their own death. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. Their complacency, their false sense of security. As they're walking down the path of folly, they think, I mean, really, what God has said isn't true. I'm perfectly fine, and there's nothing for me to worry about. So they don't care. They are complacent, and that will ultimately destroy them. But he ends, but she, wisdom, ends with hope. He who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. In a sense, it's, it's a reminder here. You've got two options here, simple one. You've got two options, naive one. You can go down this path of folly. You can continue in simplicity, which will lead to folly, which potentially will lead to being a scoffer. And your end will be swift and it will be bad. Or you can listen to me. You can heed my word. You can obey me. And what will you find? Not a false sense of security, but true security. And it's emphasized three different ways. You will live securely. You will be at ease because you will be without 
fear of harm. There would be no dread of calamity or disaster. Because you will truly be secure if you follow what I have said. And so what should we take from wisdom's message here? I think first of all, we should think maybe of of some applications as as we interact with our children and our grandchildren. That that one of the things that might be important to, to teach is that wisdom is meant for every aspect of life. Remember, Proverbs, in many ways, is a book from a father to his son, and he's actually pointing out wisdom's in the streets, wisdom's in the gates. Wisdom is calling out to all of these people. And so as we train our children, we train our grandchildren, we're wanting them to see it's not just you are a Christian as you interact at church. You are a Christian in everything that you do. That your understanding of what God has said has to inform all the decisions that you make in your life. And as well, I, I think... There might be value in in parents and grandparents allowing their children to experience some of the temporal consequences of their choices in order to spur them away from those foolish choices to wisdom. Because there is certainly an emphasis in here and that you make choices and you will eat the fruit of it. And unfortunately, there's a tendency in our day to want to keep our children from ever facing the consequences of their poor choices. And if someone else tries to make them face those consequences, we want to step in. Well, you don't understand how hard it will be. This might ruin their life. And the answer is, yeah, it might. If they don't change. If they don't learn from these things. And so there's value in allowing them to face these temporal, smaller consequences, lest they face the greater consequences in the future. But then as well, I wonder too if there isn't a reminder in light of how wisdom is calling out and pleading for us as we talk to our children and to our grandchildren to to have that sense of urgency, that passion, that sense of significance that, that we wouldn't treat issues of wisdom and folly as insignificant things, as less important than other things that we focus on in life. That if if we find as we interact with our children, what we really get excited about, what we really care about is not God's word and God's wisdom, then perhaps we're not having the right mindset. That if we aren't in a sense crying out God's truth, if we aren't shouting out God's wisdom, then maybe we don't value the wisdom of God as we should. But I think beyond parenting, we need to stop and consider, are we heeding this warning? Could wisdom be calling out to us and saying, why are you loving being simple-minded? Why are you delighting in scoffing and mocking the things of God? Why are you hating my knowledge and my wisdom? Because if we find ourselves going down that path, the call right now is turn, repent. Don't take another step down that path. 
because there will come a time in which it is too late for you to do that. And you say, when has that time come? And I say, certainly the answer is, after this life is over, the time is definitely there. Could it happen in this life? I think there might be some indications in Scripture it has. And so what do you do? The answer is, turn now. Right now, wisdom is calling to you. Right now, wisdom ends with this call. Listen to me. And if you listen to me, you will find really what you need. Don't believe the lies of this world. Don't believe the lies of sin. Don't follow the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen to me. Heed my instruction. Follow me now before it is too late. I think we probably want to at least take a step back and consider as those who claim to love God and his word, how do we respond to correction and reproof? When someone comes to us and says, this is not what you should be doing. This is not how you should be living. Are we those who spurn reproof? Are we those who gladly accept it so that we might better walk in the way of wisdom? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who cares for us. You don't want anyone to walk down the path of folly. You, you are right now in every place crying out about your glory. You were calling out for all people to follow your will, to submit to you as God and as Lord. And Lord, you've certainly done it so clearly for us in your word. So Lord, help us to heed your warnings. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.